0: On a calm afternoon in early July of 1997, Gary Green went on a leisurely trip with loved ones on his boat, the Green Machine. They were right off the coast of Newport Beach. Little did he know this outing would be marked by an eerie encounter and the beginning of a baffling mystery. As the sun dipped toward the horizon approximately four miles off of Abalone Cove, Green's attention was drawn to a distressing sight. There, a man was clinging to a boogie board amidst the gentle swell of the ocean, but nearby, a motorboat circled erratically. Its purpose was unclear. The stranded man's cries for help pierced the calm as he repeatedly cried, Help! Help! My wife! My wife! Captain Green, sensing the urgency of the situation, sprang into action. He called the Coast Guard and then extended a lifeline to the distraught man. As he pulled the man towards the boat and then into the boat, he tried to provide reassurance. The passengers aboard the green machine wrapped the man in towels, trying to warm him before they hit him with a barrage of questions. What happened? What's your name? Are you okay? Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm Sandy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I don't have much to say, but Please, if you enjoy this episode, do all the good things that help the podcast grow. I'd really appreciate it, and I love reading your reviews. Let's get started. So the man they pulled into the boat, his name was Eric Beckler, and he wasn't sure what happened, but his wife, who was in the boat, was missing. They were about four miles offshore, and for 40 to 45 agonizing minutes, they waited for the Coast Guard to arrive. Eric, possibly in shock, went silent. With this silence, there seemed to be a dark cloud cast over the scene on what was otherwise a beautiful day out on the ocean. Responding to the distress call, Orange County Sheriff's Harbor Patrol deputies Don Arthur and Gary Go arrived. Their presence sparked what appeared to be renewed panic in Eric. He began crying and calling for his missing wife. They transferred Eric into their vessel and once again he identified himself as Eric Beckler and frantically recounted the harrowing events leading to his wife's disappearance. Deputies Arthur and Go summoned more emergency vessels and under coast guard supervision searched the surrounding area for about 2 hours looking for the missing woman. At times during the search Eric appeared to be sobbing, but they also noticed a lack of tears. Eric asked a couple times whether the deputies had checked the shoreline because Maybe she swam to shore. He said she was a terrific swimmer and the ocean conditions had been relatively calm. Shoreline searches found no one. An extensive search a month later was also unsuccessful. Peggy Beckler has not been seen or heard from since July 6, 1997. According to Eric, he and his wife Peggy had chartered the boat to celebrate a joyous occasion. It was their fifth anniversary and they were celebrating Peggy's birthday, too. Amidst margaritas, laughter, and revelry, tragedy struck. Eric said he was surfing on the boogie board, and an unfortunate turn of events parted him from his beloved wife. She'd fallen overboard, but he wasn't sure how it happened, and despite his numerous attempts to reach her, the boat's continuous circling stopped him. He was afraid he'd be run over or cut up by the blades of the boat's propellers. He tried to look for her underwater, but it was far too deep, and he saw nothing at all. The deputies asked him again and again what had happened. They couldn't understand how she could have fallen out of the boat. There were plenty of boats out that day, partly because the water had been so nice and calm. Despite the one- to three-foot waves, deputies managed to stop and secure the boat that had been going in circles. Their first impression was that the interior of the boat was really clean. There were no wrappers, chips, or crumbs on the deck. While others continued the search, deputies Arthur and Go took Eric back to shore with his rental boat in tow. Within Eric's earshot, deputies Arthur and Go talked about the media possibly being present on the dock when they returned. They watched Eric and noted that he was quiet on the trip back to shore, but as soon as they reached land and Eric was getting off the boat, he became very upset. He sobbed, his shoulders heaved, and the deputies had to help him walk up the gangway. Once inside the sheriff's office, Eric seemed to calm down and could walk on his own. The next morning, Coast Guard special agents went to Eric's house to talk with him. He told them that Peggy was operating the boat and towing him on the boogie board. He said a large wave knocked him off the board, and when he resurfaced, he couldn't see her in the boat. Eric said Peggy had been sitting on the top of the seat, the part that your back would normally rest against. The agents then left the house and went to examine the boat a little bit better. They noted, too, that the boat was clean and had no trash or other visible dirt on it. They found one towel laid out in front of the motor, two duffel bags, and a cooler containing a canteen half-filled with margarita mix. There was a pair of sunglasses on a seat and a backpack. They also found two duffel bags. One contained just a magazine, and the other contained various items including chips and other snacks, toiletries, and clothes. The backpack belonged to Eric, and it contained black plastic bags, lubricant, and a vibrator. The next day, Eric was asked to come to the police station for a formal interview. Once there, he told the agents the following. He and Peggy had rented the boat to belatedly celebrate their anniversary. Around noon, they loaded their things onto the boat, then went to another dock to pick up the boogie board and a bag containing a tow rope. This was because the company that they rented the boat from didn't allow towing, so no skiing, no boogie boarding, that type of thing. So after they picked up the boogie board at a different dock, they headed out to the channel and then out into the open ocean. After about 15 or 20 minutes, they stopped to drink margaritas, have some snacks, and sunbathe. They had sex on the boat, and around 2 p.m., Eric decided to ride the boogie board while they headed back to shore. Over the spray, Eric could hardly see Peggy. He fell off the boogie board, and when he surfaced, the boat was starting to turn and Peggy wasn't in it. He tried to get to the boat, but he couldn't. He thought that maybe Peggy had hit her head and then fallen into the water. While Eric was being interviewed, detectives were taking a closer look at the boat. And they did find a couple spots of blood. So they confronted Eric about those little spots of blood. And he mentioned that he saw a couple splotches, a pool, or a couple drops of blood on the cushions in the front of the boat after he and Peggy had sex. He also said he saw a small amount of blood in the back of the boat and that there was some on the vibrator. He said he thought that Peggy might have been on her period. Obvious observation skills are not in Eric's skill set. Also, no blood was found on the vibrator, which raised suspicions. Coupled with Eric's strange behavior on the day his wife disappeared and over the following days, the police began to have stronger suspicions about his involvement in his wife's disappearance. When asked about his relationship with his wife, Eric also claimed that things were great. They rarely fought, and they had a strong, wonderful marriage— This would prove to be untrue. While it might have begun as such, according to friends, family, co-workers, etc, things had changed. So let's back up a little bit and start at the beginning. Peggy was the fourth of five children, and whether it was working on the family farm or trying to keep up with their siblings, she was always moving fast. Maybe this was why she became a star athlete for Dexter High School in New Mexico. She was always a strong swimmer and would eventually begin racing in triathlons. Triathlons, for those who may not know, consist of a sequence of swimming, biking, and running. The distances vary from races that may take less than an hour all the way to the Ironman distance, which can take as long as 17 hours. Peggy's family described her as a go-getter. If she wanted something, she made it happen. When she decided to pursue a degree in physical therapy from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, she did so easily. After college, she knew she wanted to go somewhere where she could enjoy the outdoors, an athletic lifestyle, and be able to find work easily. She found her place in Newport Beach. To her, Newport was an amazing big place filled with people and money, and she worked hard for hers. Working long hours, Peggy rehabilitated patients through a health care company. Colleagues were impressed by her dedication, and as the years passed, she earned a reputation as a devoted therapist and was known to continue treating patients after they were discharged, often at no cost. She had bigger plans and was going places. Newport Beach offered more than money. It offered the emblems that spoke of success and drive, and Peggy would eventually surround herself with them. A beautiful home, an office, a purple Porsche, and all the sports gear she could ever want. Eric was 23 when he met Peggy, who was 31. He was a California native and had a fairly typical upbringing. He graduated from Long Beach Poly High School and was quite athletic himself. Though he attempted the Marine Corps, he dropped out during his first year, attributing it to culture shock and homesickness. Afterwards, he relocated to Long Beach with his mother and enrolled at UC Irvine, where he later earned a bachelor's degree in history. He was living in his mother's Long Beach home and riding his bike to classes at UC Irvine because he didn't have a car. On the weekends, he played beach volleyball, which he loved and played well and often. He was an intense player who would berate himself when he missed a shot though friends said he was always quick to pull himself back together. A game of beach volleyball is where Eric crossed paths with Peggy. She thought he was eye-catching, and he posed no threat to her. And she enjoyed the ornaments of success, one of which may have been Eric. Love blossomed quickly, and they married in the fall of 1991, once in a civil ceremony and another in a castle in Germany. They returned to live on Balboa Island and started a company that Peggy had been dreaming about. In June of 1992, Jerry Care Rehabilitation opened with Peggy as president and Eric as vice president. Peggy ran the day-to-day business while Eric did the background technical work. And things went very well for them. The business exploded. After only five years, Jerry Care found a location in Newport Beach, a $12,000-per-month ocean view location. The Beckler family had grown over this time as well, from two to five. The husband and wife business partners seemed inseparable, from each other and their children. Even with a full-time nanny, they frequently brought their children to work. Peggy set up a swing in her office for her kids and seemed to balance work and family life well. She took care of her kids, and she took care of her employees, too. They were treated generously with an annual ski trip to Big Bear and lavish parties hosted at the Becklers' home. One of the parties was written about in the company newsletter which Peggy wrote. It said, To everyone's surprise, guests were greeted at the home of the Becklers by what appeared to be genies offering holiday cheer. The house was beautifully decorated in gold with servers in Middle Eastern-style dress, including ornate head wraps, The guests were feted with a menu of international cuisine, including Moroccan and North African fare. Fina, a belly dancer, entertained guests throughout the evening. When one employee broke her leg and was unable to attend work, Peggy insisted she move into the Balboa Island home rent-free. Two other Jerry Care staff members lived in a guest house on the property as well. Eric and Peggy exuded energy and devotion to each other. It wasn't uncommon during a meeting to have Peggy give Eric a small present, such as a poem. A friend of theirs, who eventually went to work for Peggy, invited the couple for dinner and watched as they arrived in a new red Corvette that Peggy had rented just to celebrate Eric's birthday. What was clear was that Peggy oversaw day-to-day operations. She ran the meetings, hired personnel, and controlled the company's billing. The company's success, was due largely to her questionable billing practices, especially when it came to Medicare. It seemed to employees that the more Peggy learned about the system and how it did and didn't work, the more she took from it and the more fortune smiled on JerryCare. When the company's consultant for Medicare billing strongly suggested she change her billing methods, she fired him. Peggy's company newsletter always displayed pictures of beautiful people. Many times the president herself and vice president, Eric, were pictured winning performance awards, getting promotions, and participating in company-sponsored activities, like walks for Alzheimer's. She hired fit, attractive people, dressed them professionally, and after working them hard, she encouraged them to play hard, too. She threw parties in a disco room the couple had built in the basement of their home. The parties were mandatory for employees and weren't always models of decorum. Eric apparently drank heavily at the parties and tended to let himself go wild. At one party, he jumped onto a guest's car, crashing through the sunroof. In time, Jerry Care staff began to feel like the parties weren't so much about building camaraderie or enjoyment. Instead, they flaunted the Beckler's wealth. It's possible that jealousy was lifting its ugly head, but it's undeniable that the employees were starting to lose their initial positive feelings towards their bosses. Complaints arose from employees feeling coerced into babysitting the Beckler children at the office. Meanwhile, the therapist with the broken leg, who had been allowed to stay for free in the Beckler home, realized she had unwittingly taken the role of a live-in babysitter. She began to believe that, with the Becklers, nothing came without strings attached. The employees who stayed in the guest house found that their positions with titles such as task leader and clinical training coordinator came with responsibilities like performing personal errands for their bosses. They were often paged to come into the office to babysit or sent to pick up the children or tutor employees for upcoming physical therapy exams. Once, they spent the better part of a day searching for a specific rice cooker Peggy wanted for a party. When they returned with the item, she outfitted the men in tuxedos and told them they would be serving at the party that night. Peggy and Eric spent a lot of time together. With virtually no distinction between their home and office, things became increasingly tense between them. More and more arguments could be heard behind closed doors. Arguments about Peggy's attempts to dictate Eric's life such as who he could have as friends and when he could play volleyball. Employees at Jerry Care began to notice that things had changed between the two of them as well. They said that Eric had become kind of lost in his role and that they believed Peggy enjoyed putting him in his place. His position was not really necessary, and she was heard telling others that she had him under her wing. In 1996... American Retirement Villas, we'll call them ARV, sought to expand its retirement services and rehabilitation and thought that Jerry Care was a promising target. They wanted to buy the business from Peggy, and they were impressed by Jerry Care's growth and strategy. They ended up buying the company in August. Peggy and Eric were allowed to keep their positions and continued to manage the company after the acquisition. The buyout was announced to staff during a mandatory meeting at Jerry Care's Newport Beach office, with Peggy leading the discussion. She shared the story of Jerry Care's journey and development, and highlighted her vision for the company. However, some attendees noted a sense of condescension when Peggy turned to Eric and asked if he wanted to add anything. Eric was obviously surprised and embarrassed to be asked the question, and he said no. Despite the apparent success of the purchase of JerryCare, the new owners soon encountered financial difficulties. Peggy was struggling to meet payroll, and it was revealed that much of the company's funds had been diverted into the Beckler's personal accounts. In addition, 10 employees discovered that their 401k retirement contributions were missing. These actions led to an investigation by the IRS. The result was that the Becklers were required to repay the employees. There was some shady stuff going on. With a 639,000 first and a 79,000 second mortgage on their home, a new Porsche, and recent trips including one to Morocco, as well as a $12,000 monthly lease payment on the Newport Beach property. Peggy was scrambling She became more demanding about productivity. Where she had once been generous with wages, she now attempted to make cuts. When she decided to cut one employee's salary, Eric stepped in and said no. When that happened, Peggy's jaw literally dropped, the employee said. It seems that this must have happened in front of several people, because this same employee would say that Peggy seemed to resent Eric for overstepping his authority in front of the other people. JerryCare was Peggy's company, and everybody knew it. As for the new owners, well, they were quick to investigate Peggy's billing and spending practices after several employees came forward with their concerns. An accountant noticed inconsistencies in her financial work, and several employees came forward with stories about misuse of company funds. The new owners fired the Becklers in March of 1997 for alleged misconduct and misuse of funds, The firing, confusingly, came with a compensation package that was rumored to be worth several million dollars in company stock. With their company gone and a Medicare investigation pending, Peggy faced the possibility of serving time in jail and losing her physical therapy license. Eric held no license, and as most of the employees claimed, he didn't really have a role in the company anymore, so he couldn't be held accountable. This served to make things even more tense between the couple. One of Peggy's friends said that Peggy was crying about her marriage virtually every time she saw her. Meanwhile, Eric's friends were so tuned in to what was going on that one of them bought him the book Divorce for Dummies. After finding all of this out, it was pretty obvious to investigators that Eric had been lying when he said that he and Peggy had a wonderful marriage. Friends had said that Eric never expressed love to Peggy, and that they never witnessed any affection between them. Eric sometimes ignored Peggy's calls when he was with friends, and approximately a year before Peggy's disappearance, the police were called twice due to fights between Peggy and Eric. When police spoke to Eric's best friend, Darren Kobe Laker, who went by Kobe, he said that two or three years prior to Peggy's disappearance, Eric told him he was having marital troubles. He described Peggy as selfish, controlling, and manipulative, and he expressed his reluctance to be around her. Eric also complained to Kobe's wife Tammy about Peggy's demands for him to stay home and help with the children, which was something he was unwilling to do. What he did want to do was go hang out with Kobe at strip clubs. In July of 1996, when Peggy was pregnant, Eric met a woman named Tracy Nunez at a topless bar. He bought her a few drinks and paid her to perform a topless dance for him. He actually took her to a hotel room where she did the dance, but refused his request to have sex. Several days later, he called her asking to see her again, but she declined. At some point within the year preceding Peggy's disappearance, Eric told Kobe of his plan to portray Peggy as an unfit mother. He planned to capture footage of her using cocaine with the aim of gaining custody of their children. He thought a divorce was on the horizon. The only reason he hesitated to initiate it himself was due to concerns about losing money and custody of the kids. It was clear to Kobe that his friend's marriage was over. But what was more alarming was that Eric asked Kobe point-blank, What do you think about the possibility of killing my wife? Kobe's response was, Have things really gotten that bad? Eric then outlined a plan to dispose of Peggy's body at sea, possibly in a barrel, and assured Kobe he could convincingly play the grieving husband. Kobe, uncomfortable with the conversation, made it clear he didn't want to hear about that subject ever again. Following the couple's termination from Care, the Becklers faced serious financial difficulties. Investigators were pretty sure that Eric had murdered Peggy for money— and in order to keep his kids, but they didn't have enough to prove it. They did find out that each spouse was the beneficiary of a $2.6 million life insurance policy on the other. Investigators worked with the Coast Guard to try to recreate what Eric had said had happened, and on two different occasions, when they took the same boat out in the same weather and water conditions, no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't figure out how Peggy could have fallen overboard. They simply didn't believe that somehow a big wave knocked Eric off his board and threw Peggy from the boat. They couldn't shake the idea that Eric's sobbing was a performance. They recalled once when they went to his home at a prearranged time and found Eric lying on his couch sobbing. But as they prepared to leave, guests had arrived, at which time Eric stood up and smiled, greeting his guests as if nothing was wrong. And they had never seen actual tears. He also displayed behaviors consistent with guilt outside of police presence. His nanny told police that he had a more somber demeanor around Peggy's family, but when they weren't around, he seemed fine. She also said that Eric was short with Peggy's parents, and that most of the conversations that he had with them had to do with money, either asking for it or trying to figure out how to access it. Within three months of Peggy's death, Eric met a woman named Tina New. She was an actress and a model who had appeared on Baywatch. She was first introduced to Eric by a friend. On their first date, he took her out for dinner and explained that he was a widower. He said his wife Peggy had drowned in a boating accident when he was planning to celebrate their fifth anniversary. He told her that the weather had been very bad and that her body was never found. Tina who had two young daughters of her own, was touched by Eric's story of being a newly single father to three children who depended on him for everything. She felt sorry for him having gone through a tragedy like he had. But she also asked Eric if the police had questioned him. She didn't think he was involved, but she assumed that people would speculate. When she asked, Eric started crying, which made Tina feel terrible. When she asked him how he knew that Peggy hadn't been rescued or had failed to contact him because of amnesia, Eric said he knew for sure that his wife wasn't coming back. Despite Eric's bereavement, there was a powerful traction between the two of them. Tina, age 32, was at a low point in her life. Her marriage had broken down, and her ex-husband had custody of their daughters. So the attention of handsome, wealthy Eric was irresistible. He had a sports car an ocean front home with a pool, and even a private disco, so when he asked her to move in the day after their first date, she did. Although it had only been 12 weeks since Peggy disappeared. I felt like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, Tina said. Eric made me feel so special. But Tina had been right when she'd asked if police suspected Eric. After three months, they were even more convinced of his guilt as were Peggy's parents, June and Glenn Marshall. "'When my wife was notified that Peggy disappeared,' Glenn recalled, "'she just screamed, that son of a bitch killed her.'" They were deeply dismayed when Eric invited a new woman to essentially take Peggy's place, and also one who began taking care of their grandchildren. In return for Tina's help, Eric treated her to fancy dinners and spared no expenses when it came to wooing her. Eric stood to receive over $2 million in insurance money, but he knew he couldn't collect it until a death certificate had been issued. He was sure to mention that to Tina. At first, Tina was blissfully happy with Eric, but slowly a few things started to bother her. She'd noticed Eric didn't seem to mourn for Peggy, but she put it down to his way of coping. She was shocked by the brutal tones of his calls to Peggy's grieving parents, which were always about money and his occasionally cold attitude towards his children. The stress of getting to know a new man, spending day after day with him as he didn't have a job, plus helping him with his kids, as well as taking care of her own, was a lot to take on, and it led to arguments. This new relationship wasn't going to be easy. Despite the arguments that seemed to grow worse over time, Tina remained deeply in love with Eric. Even when, after being together for 18 months, he pushed her during an argument, she found it difficult to leave him. However, she did decide that she needed her own place, so she moved out and rented an apartment of her own. In her own words, he had become a Jekyll and Hyde, but I still didn't think he killed Peggy. He was my knight in shining armor. Despite their ongoing issues, they still discussed the prospect of marriage, which was something They both seemed to want. This changed dramatically one day when Tina was relaxing at Eric's house and decided to watch an old videotape. To her shock, a news report about Peggy's death appeared on the screen. She thought it was strange that Eric would have a videotaped news clipping. And while Tina looked at the video, she noticed a significant discrepancy between the police's account of Peggy Beckler's accident and Eric's version The police claimed the sea was calm during the incident. This was the opposite of what Eric had told her, that it was rough and choppy conditions. When Eric caught Tina watching the footage, his reaction was revealing. How did you get that, he inquired, before falling silent. Tina had never thought that Eric was responsible for Peggy's death, but her perspective shifted when she realized that Eric had lied to her. Confronting him, she said, you're not telling me everything, and the expression on his face spoke volumes. With her suspicions mounting, Tina felt a pressing need for more information, but Eric remained tight-lipped. He became guarded and refused to discuss it further. His explanations didn't add up, so she questioned him about how he expected her to marry him if he couldn't be truthful. Let's just say that Tina was persistent, and kept asking him for more. One night, Eric finally said he'd tell Tina the truth. His version of events was chilling. He said that he and Peggy had drunk cocktails and made love twice before the accident. He said he saw her fall overboard, but he didn't help her because he knew she was going to leave him and take the kids with her. His decision to use the phrase made love and his claim of having engaged in the sexual act twice, might have been an attempt to portray himself in a more favorable light. But Tina, far from being naive, found it terrifying. She said, I was sitting there, thinking, I'm with a man who admits he let his wife die, when he could have saved her, and I have to act like this is okay. Despite Eric's confession, she said she still loved him, and tried to convince herself that what he had done— was out of love for his children, but her conscience wasn't going to let her rest. She wanted to know more, and she was determined to find the truth. So she planned a night out, a night of overindulgence, and a night where she might catch Eric off guard. A night of drinking and taking ecstasy ensued. When they went home and climbed into bed, Tina felt that the time was right. She told Eric he needed to be honest with her about his wife, but he didn't really want to talk. After several minutes of silence, Tina said, You hit her. And when she did, she said Eric acted shocked and asked, How did you know that? Over the next three hours, he told a very different story from his previous ones. Eric said they drove the boat about eight miles out to sea. Then, when Peggy was sunbathing on the boat, he walked up behind her and hit her so hard over the head that she didn't feel a thing. Those are his words, not mine. Blood was everywhere. He bent her torso over her feet, tied her hands and ankles together, covered her body with a trash bag, and anchored her body with weights, and then dumped her body overboard. Then he washed out the boat and drove back toward shore. He jumped off the back of the boat with the boogie board and let the boat drag him until it began circling, and then he was found. Eric said he had to act like an actor and scream in panic. He said he was diving in and out of the water and screaming her name and looking for her for a long time before a boat finally came. Tina asked Eric how he managed to get the weights, rope, and trash bags on board without Peggy noticing. Eric said he put them in a separate bag that was left with the boogie board at the second dock. He had planned the trip three days in advance. When she asked whether Peggy's body would ever be found, Eric said, they'll never find her. When she asked whether Peggy's body would float to the surface, he said that could never happen, because Peggy had low body fat, and he anchored her with 70 pounds of weight. Interestingly, a few days before Peggy disappeared, her cousin, Kevin Marshall, went with Peggy to the Beckler storage unit. Inside, he saw a complete dumbbell set on the floor of the unit. A few days after her disappearance, Kevin and other members of Peggy's family saw the weight set in the Beckler's garage. Two 35-pound dumbbells were missing. Tina asked why he just didn't get a divorce and expressed her fear that he might hurt her one day, but Eric promised he would never harm anyone like that again. As Tina lay in bed next to him, Paralyzed with fear and too stunned to speak, her silence left room for further confessions from Eric. He said there was blood everywhere, but that he cleaned it all up. After mopping up the blood, disposing of towels and other evidence, Eric moved the boat closer to shore, approximately four miles away from the murder site. When another boat approached, he cried out for help. Then he diverted any search efforts far from the actual scene of the crime. After his confession, he said he wanted to have sex with Tina, which she allowed, but she would later say that she didn't want to, but she was so scared she didn't know what else to do. He was afraid he might hurt or kill her, too. The following morning, trying to wrap her head around everything that had happened the night before, Tina found herself unable to leave. Eric seemed to want to keep his thumb on her. He listened to her phone calls. And demanded that she be present and by his side, all the while feigning a future together where they would share in his soon to come wealth. In time, Tina realized she couldn't continue living with him. Tearfully and secretly, she reached out to Peggy's parents, unable to bear the burden any longer. I know what happened to your daughter, she confessed. I don't want to cause you any more pain, but I can't live with this. She was in turmoil. She worried about taking a father away from his children. Children she had grown to love, especially since they had lost their mother, but she was afraid, and she knew she had to do the right thing. Peggy needed justice. Peggy's parents begged Tina to contact the police, but she needed time to think. That night, Eric came to Tina's apartment bearing alcohol and a huge duffel bag. Police would later say they suspected that he decided that Tina was too dangerous to live and intended to kill her and transport her body in the bag. But Eric and Tina got into a huge argument, and perhaps, luckily for Tina, neighbors called the police and Eric fled. When the police arrived, Tina told them everything. The detective who had been investigating Eric said he'd been waiting for things to go bad between the couple. He had known it was going to happen, and he knew that when it did, there was a good chance that Tina would be able to help with the investigation. He asked her to wear a wire, and to try to get Eric to talk about the murder. After a bugged telephone conversation, which didn't reveal much, Tina agreed to a police request to wear a wire to tape her conversations with Eric. She planned to meet him later that night. They would also bug her vehicle. That night, Eric and Tina went to a Mexican restaurant. Eric told her he wanted to leave the state. He also mentioned that he had spoken with his attorney. Tina said, why would your attorney tell you to leave the state unless you told your attorney what happened? Eric answered, I didn't tell him what happened. He hinted at plans to start anew in Las Vegas. He also talked about cleaning blood off the boat, and he said she didn't feel a thing, but he didn't say, I killed my wife. However, he alluded to it. Eric told Tina he was going to change his identity and leave the country. Police who were listening in knew they'd have to move immediately. Tina had planned to drive back to her apartment and drop Eric off, but he insisted on taking the wheel of her car. This terrified her. She thought she was done for. She knew she had riled him up, and she begged him to pull over, finally screaming and yanking at the steering wheel until he finally did. He got out of the car... And she sped away it was only minutes before the police pulled up and arrested eric the california deputy district attorney deborah lloyd who prosecuted eric considered the lack of body a hurdle but nothing insurmountable in his defense eric's lawyers claimed that he had made up the story as part of a sexual fantasy game he told jurors that everything he had said to tina was said because he knew she liked bad boys Her previous boyfriends had been in trouble with the law, and he thought that that turned her on, so he played into it. The jury was not convinced. What sealed it for them was the audio tape. It provided the proof the court needed. Halfway through, Tina had asked Eric flat out, why'd you do it? And his answer was money, partly that and partly for the kids. In March 2001, Eric was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Peggy Beckler's family ended up raising her three children in New Mexico. They were eventually told that their father was accused of their mother's death. The children were sent to counseling with the hopes that their mother's murder by their father's hands wouldn't forever haunt them. Eric Beckler continues to maintain his innocence. His mother, Linda, believes the verdict was wrong and speculates that Peggy faked her own death. Nonetheless, Eric remains in state prison in California. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to see pictures to go with this episode, I will post them on Patreon, as well as Facebook and Instagram. As always, there are links to those in the episode description. There are also links there that will allow you to sponsor the podcast, which would be amazing. I would love your support. Another way to support the podcast is by telling friends and talking about it on social media, which I would also love. Thanks again to all of you and to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas and safe travels of all kinds.
1: Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. My name is John, I'm based in Wales and cover cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. Each episode tells the story of a cold case from the original timeline right through to recent developments. The content is based on thorough research, and all the evidence is presented in a clear and engaging way. There's no banter, but a respectful narration of what happened and any theories. A new episode is released every other Monday, with occasional bonus episodes. There are already plenty of episodes to binge. Find Persons Unknown wherever you listen to podcasts.